0: Everyone, I'm Julie Gunlock, host of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lance Izumi. He is the senior director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute. He is the former two-term president of the Board of Governors of the California Community College, colleges, which is the largest system of higher education in the nation. Recently, Dr. Izumi co-authored the new book, The Great Parent Revolt. Is there one ever? How parents and grassroots leaders are fighting critical race theory in America's schools. The book profiles ordinary moms and dads who want critical race theory out of America's school. Thanks for joining me today, Doctor.
1: Well, Julie, it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast with you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and being able to uh, you know, get some information out to your listeners.
0: This certainly is, I think, our, one of the most important issues of our day and a great concern to parents. Tell me about your new book, The Great Revolt. And to listeners, we will put the link to your book um, in when we post uh, this podcast. But tell us about your new book. Yeah, so
1: you know the uh, the book, first of all, is about uh, critical race theory and how average parents are uh, and educators and students are fighting critical race theory in the trenches. So, you know, this book is different from other books that have talked about critical race theory, which have often been, uh, you know, uh, discussing kind of theories, academic aspects of critical race theory. This isn't that. This is a, a book that talks about critical race theory from the point of view of the people who are actually going through it and having yeah. actually to deal with it on a day to day basis. And how are they trying to defeat it? Because critical race theory is really the most divisive doctrine ever to threaten America's schools and America's children. And, uh, you know, for those of your listeners who aren't uh, familiar with exactly what critical race theory actually is, it's uh, really a variation of Marxism. Because if you think about Marxism, uh, classical Marxism anyway, you know, you had the oppressed uh, class and you had the oppressor class. Now, the uh, back uh, under classical Marxism, it was based upon your economic status. So if you were rich you were the oppressor class. If you were not rich, you were the oppressed. Right. Um, and so.
0: Factory owner was the oppressor. Factory worker was the oppressed.
1: That's right. Yes. You know, and uh, most of your listeners have heard of the terms, you know, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, you know, so the bourgeoisie were the, uh, the landowners, the capitalists, uh, they were the oppressors and the um, uh, the workers were the oppressed. Uh, but what, critical race theory has done is that they have changed that, uh, not the oppressor and oppressor class, but they've changed who belongs to it. So right. that they've changed it into a racial uh, membership so that if you uh, are white and sometimes uh, Asian, that you are part of the oppressor class and if uh, you're other non-white races, you're part of the oppressed class. Yes. So the difference between uh, classical Marxism and this racial Marxism is that at least under classical Marxism, there was economic mobility. You could actually, and this is what happened in America, and why it, uh, Marxism really never took hold in America, is because you had this great economic mobility uh, between people who uh, were in a working class, but they could, you know, move up uh, the economic ladder. You know, they could become uh, uh landowners or business owners and so therefore you know um uh, americans really never took to this you know uh, bifurcated uh marxism based on economic class but under racial marxism uh under critical race theory uh you you're stuck because you race is with you forever you cannot change your race and therefore uh you will always be part of the oppressed class no uh or the oppressor class no matter for example if you happen to be a poor white person living in Appalachia, you know, uh, and having to deal with uh, great poverty, you know, ver- uh, versus, you know, somebody who is non white, but is very high up on the economic ladder. But because they happen to be of a certain uh, uh, race, they will always be viewed as uh, a part of the oppressed class. And so, you know, uh, again, this is extremely divisive. And, uh, you know, what uh, our book does is we profile more than a dozen Parents and students, educators who are fighting this, because you know, as you can imagine, there's uh, this type of doctrine has played havoc, you know. Yes, and and I kids in the class.
0: And I do want to talk about a couple of the parents that you profile, and I do love that because you know, I feel like there's a lot of scholarly books about critical race theory, um but this book is told from the parents' standpoint, which I think is really good, and and for our listeners um, I think really important to hear the story straight from the parents. But I want, before we get into those stories, I want to talk to you about, I have you explain to me how, and again, a li- this is a little bit for our listeners too. How is this, you know, crit- critical theory is something that's been around in higher education for years and years and years, right? I guess, I guess the sort of, it, it started to emerge in the sixties and seventies, but, but in K through 12, This is very new. Was this sort of started because of the death of George Floyd and the aftermath of that? Or was it there before and we just maybe didn't notice it? Uh, But it really exploded after George Floyd. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, there has been an explosion after George Floyd. But I do want to emphasize that this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, You know, in my work at the Pacific Research Institute, you know, one of the first studies I wrote, uh, researched and wrote uh, two decades ago was actually looking Mm -hmm. at the uh, teacher training colleges in the California State University system. And in our state, the California State University uh, produces the majority of teachers in our state. And so what I did was I looked at the teacher training curricula, looked at, actually analyzed the books that were being used uh, to train teachers. And what you saw is that a lot of this critical race theory, these concepts Mm -hmm. uh, were being taught 20 years ago. And so you uh, you wonder, like, r- right now, you know, uh, critical race theory seems to have exploded onto the landscape. But then you have to think about that in a, a little bit, because, you know, a lot of the teachers who are teaching it were primed, just, uh, become teachers in the last couple of years. They've been right. teachers for many years. Right. And so they've bought into it. And why have they bought into it? Because it was around decades ago, and they were receiving that training. So yes, in a certain sense, uh, the public has uh, become aware of critical race theory in the classroom over the last few years, but it has been something that has been eating its way into the K-12 education system for many years, and uh, that's why I often talk about the education deep state, Yes, uh, and that it's not just oh. what you're seeing in the classroom, it goes back through uh, the schools of education that are producing the teachers, all of the bureaucracies. So it, it's this huge blob, basically, that we're contending. It's a Borg.
0: With. It's a Borg, and it's interesting, Doctor Izumi. I'm kind of Izumi. I'm kind of new to this. I'm I I'm one of these. I was uh, I was awoken because of covid i had to homeschool my child so now i'm very familiar with ho- homeschooling i had to pull my kids out of the public schools and they are all now in private schools so i have this has been quite a journey for me and and it has been an enlightenment of what's going on and i had no idea about these teaching colleges that were sort of incubating this for so long and then it was this george floyd was like this flame that you know this First, um, it ignited this movement. And I feel like before maybe the teachers were had a yellow light, like they were kind of, you know, maybe um, putting it in the curriculum or talking in this way, because, you know, I did have kids in the public schools. And I always say that because private schools are just as bad. Many private schools are just, you know, I so I, I find myself stopping myself, always saying it's a public school problem because some incredibly expensive private schools are just as bad. But um, but I do feel like after George Floyd, it really just became this huge um, uh, priority for a lot of K through 12 educators. But I think that's really important what you've said, that this was there for a lot longer because people really do are under the impression that it just started happening. Um, But this has been supported and encouraged from from these training colleges. And now what you see is actually in what I find because I sometimes, you know, there'll be a there'll be someone in the public schools who'll slip me some information from my local public school. They'll secretly send me something and the ongoing training now of teachers. um, It's all about CRT, the DEI instruction and passing. So it's actually gotten much, much worse. Um, You talk about some parents in your book who are fighting back about, uh, against this. And I recognize a lot of these, uh, these names, Nicole Solis, Asra Nomani, who works with me at the Independent Women's Network and Forum, um, Zee Z- Fanfleet. What a story there! Um, I'd love for you to touch on her, but I'd also like you to talk a little bit about Gab Clark because I find her story so interesting. And I know I'm I'm going on. I'm going to get to you in a second. I'm sorry, but this is. But I do feel like, to some degree, the pushback on CRT is often portrayed as just a bunch of angry white people or nervous church moms, you know, and it isn't that it's incredibly diverse. The number both politically and, and on, on race, these are not all just a bunch of conservative white women that are pushing back on this. So anyway, I want you to get into, into the stories that you wrote about the parents that are fighting back. We can tar- start with, start with G fam fleet because she has a really compelling story.
1: Yes. No, I, I, everything you, what you said, uh, Julie is absolutely uh, spot on, you know, the people who are fighting against critical race, the parents, the students, I mean, they're not just from a single racial group, a single economic class. I mean, these are people who are from the widest uh, you know, background that you can imagine. I mean, uh, you mentioned the, these various people that we'll uh, be talking about. But one of the things I want to point out in our book and, and uh, underscore is the fact that we profile people from every background you can imagine. And because we wanted to uh, tell our uh, readers and also now tell your listeners that, you know, the, the people who are fighting critical race theory really, uh, you know, look like America. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's not just a slice of America. It's all of America that is uh, angry at what is being pushed on the children in the classroom. And you know, so you uh, ask about G. Van Fleet. G. Van Fleet is like one of the most compelling stories that Mm. we discuss in our book. Uh, She is an immigrant mom from communist China. And what makes her story so amazing and and so important for our present day in fighting uh, critical race theory is that she actually went through the Chinese Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong. Mm. And so for your listeners who aren't real familiar with the Cultural Revolution, this was a Uh, totalitarian beatdown, basically, on the Chinese people. Uh, Mao uh, 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 stood up uh, uh, young red guards who were going to basically destroy anything that they viewed as counter-revolutionary, anti-revolutionary, anything that was old, anything that uh, spoke to... Uh, more ancient Chinese culture, all of that stuff was uh, going to be destroyed if uh, these were possessions. But if people were coming from uh, certain classes that the communists viewed as being counter-revolutionary, they would then be persecuted. Mm. And so uh, you had show trials going on uh, during that time period. And you had millions, literally millions of people were killed uh, by the communists during the Cultural Revolution. And G. Fan Fleet saw all of this. Yes, She grew up as a child seeing what started off as propaganda posters in her school, which then uh, evolved into actual persecution of the teachers in her school. Uh, we talk about in uh, her experience how one of her teachers... Uh, was viewed as being a counter-revolution simply because she had a different type of hairstyle that wow. seemed to be uh, a a newer type of hairstyle that accentuated her beauty instead of uh, her proletarian status. And therefore, she became the object of persecution mm-hmm. amongst these young Red Guards who were middle school, high school age
0: kids. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the Red Guards, and I'd love to go a little into that because it is frightening if you do know anything about Chinese history and the revolution there and how Mao used young people to push these changes and to shame adults. And we see this all the time, the shout downs in higher education and even sort of the intimidation in K through 12 education and the training that's going on to push these Marxist ideas. And then you get the children. I mean, when I, I find that parents, you know, politicians and, and media on the left are constantly saying, Especially these parents on the right, they're so, you know, they're so dramatic. There's no brainwashing going on. But that's exactly what it is. And, and again, I'm so glad you profiled G. Van Fleet because she witnessed it. And she says all the time, I'm seeing this again. I'm seeing it happen.
1: That's exactly right. And I think, again, that's what makes her story so compelling, is that not only did she uh, see and experience what happened during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, but she can then see the parallels yep. between what happened in communist China and what's happening in her new homeland of America. She said that she never thought she'd ever see, you know, uh, that type of um, totalitarianism take root here in America, but she sees, says the indoctrination, the type of using of young, using young people uh, to persecute other young people and, yes. and others in society uh, because they have been indoctrinated, that that uh, is frightening to her because she says that once you lose your free speech, and right now we talk about cancel culture, right, and how people cannot say things because it goes against a critical race theory and uh, prevailing narrative. But uh, we, uh, we, we are canceled right now in terms of our free speech. But G. Van Fleet says that once you lose your free speech, the next thing you can lo- lose is your life.
0: Yes. Well, you know, uh, Doctor, it's also interesting to me, the use of, of young people, particularly K through 12. These are very young kids, very young kids being taught um, about these categories of people, the oppressors and the oppressed. And I feel like in some ways, um, you know, it normalizes these ideas. There is that as well as normalizing the idea that racism, racism is still you know, um, a massive problem in this country and that basically if you're of a certain color, you will never rise. You have no agency. You have no control over your life. You can't, as you say, you can't climb that ladder. You can never rise out of your station as it is. And I think by starting it so young, you know, I think at some point when you're mature and maybe you're in higher ed and you're able to look at these things. I mean, there's some radical people pushing this stuff in higher ed. I'm not suggesting they don't t- totally believe it. Um, but at a very young age, the, the, the brainwashing and, and introducing these concepts normalize them. And I really think, you know, I'd like you to speak about that. Is there an effort partly to get people so young, just so that it sets in at a young age, and then they're really never able to rid themselves of those, that sort of belief system.
1: No, that's absolutely right, Julie. And uh, that's why you see critical race theory and critical race theory concepts uh, being forced upon children at very young ages. Um, well, and, and, and that's also one of the reasons why we profile student in uh, our, our book, not just parents, right. uh, we profile a student named Joshua. And in his middle school, he was uh, subjected to critical race theory uh, exercises in a class that he thought was going to be on leadership. And it turned out it was a lot of it was on critical race theory and social justice. And yeah. so uh, one of the things that he told us in uh, when we interviewed him was that he had to engage in a exercise called a privilege walk where all the students were lined up shoulder to shoulder and the teacher would call out supposed privileged traits, such as, I am white, I am male, I am Christian. And every time that trait applied to a student, that student had to take a a step forward. And since uh, Joshua was the only white male in his class, he had to take uh, steps forward in front of all the rest of his class and he said this was horrible for him. He felt like he was being singled out. He felt like he uh, had done something wrong that he was shameful simply because he was a white male and he felt horrible because of it and he said that why should i feel horrible for this for things that i can't control? I, I mean, can't
0: control my race. Well the, and myself. the other and, and the thing i think doctor that really upsets me too is you know i have a very good friend she has a child with special needs. She is not married. She's a single mom, right? She struggles. She also has to take care of her sick parents. Financially, it's very difficult for them. But in that classroom, her white son would have stepped forward several times and they wouldn't have asked questions about his home life and about the struggles that his mother has and their financial situation. And does he have a father present in the house? They wouldn't have asked any of those detailed questions. It was entirely about because you're white, you're privileged. And that, I think, is what sickens me it's 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 also teaching kids to have a lack of empathy for their fellow man for their fellow students and not to consider maybe these maybe there's a complex story of maybe all humans are complex and other factors uh really contribute to whether we're actually privileged i mean the whole thing about privilege is so stupid anyway but um that's that's really frightening that it really does teach people to judge them entirely on qualities that they have no control over, as you say, um, that that is it's, it's very disturbing. It's sad to think of how many kids are being put in that situation, which is why parents are angry. You know, I know that Gab's story, Gab Clark's story is kind of interesting and relates to this a little bit because she mm-hmm. was very angry about how her daughter was treated. Um, tell us a little bit about her story.
1: Yeah, no, I, and I think that uh, you know it's a great lead into Gab's uh, story. Gab's Clark is a, an incredible woman. Uh, she is um, somebody who you might would be the opposite of what you would think would as an anti-CRT warrior. She is African American. She is extremely low income. Uh, she when uh, she was telling us her story, uh, she was t- uh, and at the time where a lot of the things going on with her kids. Uh, were happening in school she was uh, uh living in a motel room in las Vegas because wow. that's the only thing they could afford they had to make choices between having food or gasoline oftentimes they'd have to stand in food lines all these sorts of you know very difficult life challenges she was facing but she was sending her kid uh to her kids to a school and uh, uh in uh and you mentioned uh early on in our uh, podcast interview uh, about how a lot of parents have figured out what was going on in the classroom because of COVID and uh, remote uh, learning, and they were able to look over the shoulder of their kids, and they saw. Uh, in Gab's case, she saw that her daughter was taking an art class, and uh, uh, the teacher was talking about Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and about uh, you know graffiti and you know various types of things that ordinarily. You know, at least Gabs would view as a negative thing, but these were being uh, portrayed in a positive way. And she got very angry about this and confronted the principal. And uh, um, that that was basically her awakening to what was going on in her uh, kid's school. But then it got even worse because her son uh, was uh, in a class that called the sociology of change. He was a high school age student, and uh, this was a required class for him to graduate. And there were um, uh, critical race theory inspired lessons in this class. Uh, so, for example, he had to identify himself on, along all kinds of different aspects of who he supposedly was, uh, you know, his race, his religion, his sex his, uh, se- uh, gender identity, all these sorts of things he had to identify. And he felt very uncomfortable identifying that because, uh, in, you know, his, her son, now Gabs is African American, but her son is, um, uh, uh, of mixed race. Uh, his father, uh, was white. Uh, unfortunately he, uh, is deceased, uh, which is again, why they were so poor. And, um, uh, but, uh, uh, Gab's son, w- uh, William, uh, had white features, blonde hair, blue eyes. Mm. And he felt that if he identified himself, let's say, as white, uh, that he would, again, receive negative feedback right. because of that. And he said, I don't want to do this. This is, you know, this is an invasion of my privacy, basically, and that I should not have to be forced to do this lesson. So he refused. And because he refused to do that, uh, he received a failing grade in that mm-hmm. class. And because this class was a requirement for graduation, he didn't receive his diploma. Oh, my gosh. And so therefore, Gabs, who, again, is this poor African-American mom of five kids living in a motel room, uh, she decided that I've got to sue. And so she filed a federal lawsuit against the school saying that they had violated uh, her son's um, uh, First Amendment rights to free speech. Uh, they compelled him to uh, to speak and he didn't have to, uh, that they violated his 14th Amendment uh, equal protection rights, and they violated his rights under various federal uh, statutes, such as the 64 Civil Rights Act, which you can't discriminate based upon race.
0: <laughs> you know, Doctor, I find this this gap story so compelling, too, because when my child was in the last year that he was in the public schools, and I'm part of a district that has seen a lot of violence in the schools. um, And my son was sort of picked up and thrown across a hallway and injured by another student. And it was, it was terrifying. It was all caught on camera. They wouldn't let me see the film. They wouldn't tell me any details. They kept it all hidden. The, the um, assailant was essentially left, let off. And then I was in, in no way allowed to, be told that okay he got a suspension he's been expelled he's now out of that classroom they wouldn't tell me any details so i had no way of knowing if my son was going to be safe and i tell this story because every time i asked for details i was told privacy privacy we have to respect the the assailant's privacy right i i must i, I must i must have heard the word privacy a thousand times that first day that i called the school to get details and yet They expect kids to lay this all out. They don't give a, a, they don't care, give a care about kids privacy when it comes to pushing these CRT things and putting and, and, and essentially giving up details so you can put yourself in a certain category. That's the kind of thing that galls a lot of people is the utter hypocrisy. And there's really, there really are no rules, right? It's only, it's an agenda. It's pushing an agenda. And it's terrible that, that these kids are, are put in that situation. How does, does Gab have a happy ending?
1: Yes, Gabs has a happy ending. Uh, My understanding is that there was a settlement and, uh, you know, uh, Gabs and her son, uh, you know, came out of it happy, let's put it that way. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think that what's important for, uh, you know, your listeners to understand is that, you know, uh, you would expect that, the again, that the last person who would file a federal lawsuit would be somebody like Gabs Clark. But I think that that shows the lengths uh, to which Parents are willing to protect their children from this just insidious ideological doctrine that is corrupting our classrooms right now. And um
0: you know, I I, I got to tell you, Gabs Clark is now kind of famous in the parent world and the in the parent activist world. Um She's she's a known activist now out there you know she's also very involved in the gender ideology kind of push this this sort of critical gender ideology that's also being pushed on kids you know what are your pronouns all this kind of baloney that's now in the schools as well but i look at a lot uh, the list of 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 the other women you know uh, nicole solis uh, G. Van Fleet, tiffany um, Tiffany Justice, I look at myself, who I mean, I, you know, I was doing reg reform, I was happy, writing for the Wall Street Journal on, you know, hey, get your vaccines, you know, get your polio vaccine, like I was in a completely different area of policy. And now, I talk a lot about education. And it's created this force of, of a lot of moms, but also dads, Ian Pryor in Northern Virginia. And there's a, a number of other dads that are involved too. And yet, so there's this, this, you know, you've written about this whole new parent revolt. This is so strong. And yet I can't help but feel, it's like, sometimes I feel defeated.
1: Well, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, it's often easy for parents to feel defeated because again, you know, you're going against the education deep state. And, uh, you know, and so they have so many weapons at their disposal. Yeah. I mean, not, not just the district bureaucracy that wants to be obscure and hide things from parents like you, right? Uh, you know, the the teachers unions are extremely powerful politically. You know, they seem to have unending amounts of money to spend. But I mean, one of the things that I try to do in this book and my, and myself and my co-authors, Wen Wan Wu and uh, Mackenzie Richards, what we try to do is we get, try to give parents hope That, you know, they aren't going to be defeated. That it's not uh, as if that despite the fact the other side has a lot of weapons at their disposal, that parents actually are a powerful force if they come together. And one of the things that we do in our book is to, you know, show that, you know, people like Nicole Solis and others who have used uh, Public Records Act as a tool in order to enforce transparency on the schools to get that information that was denied to you uh, you know to get that out to people so they know what's being taught to their kids that uh, you see we interview and have a profile Ryan Gurdusky, who has a a political action committee geared only to uh, promoting parent candidates who are going to do something about these issues in their school districts and he's proven to be extremely effective Um, you know he's helped uh, candidates all across the country. And he's basically been able to flip so many school boards uh, that had previously been controlled by the special interest groups uh, to pro-parent majorities. I look here in my own uh, state of California, and you can't get more blue than California right now, unfortunately. What are you doing there? No. <laughs> I know. I always ask that myself, uh, Julie. But, uh, but even here in California, uh, we, in the November election, we saw a number of school boards flip to pro-parent majorities. Uh, in fact, um, uh, down in Southern California in a city called Temecula, uh, the parents gained a pro parent majority on that board. And what was the first thing they did as a majority? They banned CRT in school districts, in in their school district. And so you're seeing that all across uh, the country that parents are now motivated. They're energized. They've had the CRT has acted as a catalyst that has brought them together and have shown that, Hey, there's still more of us then there are the proponents of CRT. And that's why the CRT proponents want to tell parents there's no CRT in the classroom. Because if the uh, parents believe that, they won't get organized. But, uh, you know, as I point out in the book, you know, Tiffany Justice, who you mentioned, with, uh, who's one of the co-founders of Moms for Liberty, you know, when she started her uh, uh, organization, she went from basically nothing to uh, now uh, 85 yeah. chapters, In most states in the country, uh, near uh, eighty-five, I say I should say two hundred chapters across the country, and then uh, eighty-five thousand members across the country. Well, and it's
0: interesting. You know, it's interesting. We at IW we've also started a membership organization, and we now have about twenty chapters all over the country, and we, what we wanted to do is capture some of those open school groups. Um, And, you know, like Loudoun County can do better. You know, it's, it's these little groups that were set up right in the midst of COVID. And it was sort of, you know, a lot of parents were willing to give these school districts a lot of grace early on. But then after a while, everyone's like, open the schools, get rid of the masks. What is going on here? And so they, they started to collect. And what we, what, I think what Moms for Liberty and what I, I, um, IW, ne- uh, Ind- Independent Women's Network, and there's other groups, there's more regional groups realize is, wow, the, if we can get these parents active on other issues, I mean, this world would be a lot better if citizens stood up and let their voices be heard. Obviously, schools are a major part of that. Um, but that is encouraging. And I think one, one thing I want to cover before we talk about this is, You mentioned this, that, that school administrators, K through 12 schools, they are hiding it now because they know they're under attack. And so they have these strategies where they can say, Oh no, CRT isn't taught. And they do this thing where, because if you look at a child's curriculum, it says, you know, reading, writing, it kind of, you know, follows the typical thing, but it's like the books they're reading are all candy for kids, right? It's Bettina Love. It's like, you know, it's all this CRT stuff. So it might just say, you know, literature. And then it says even the math stuff. I mean, math has even been, been touched by this stuff. Um, so how, what tips would you give for parents? Because some are being told, oh, CRT isn't taught here, but we know it is. What, how can parents stay vigilant?
1: Well, I think that, uh, you know, again, going back to uh, this uh, public records requ- uh, request, uh, strategy that uh, uh, Nicole Solis used. Uh, let me uh, mention uh, a uh, second person that we profile, a parent who used p- public records requests. Uh, we we profile Kelly Shankoski, who is a mom from Monterey County out here in California on the Central Coast. Beautiful, beautiful place, uh, if anyone's ever been there. But, uh, you know, her uh, school's uh, were rife with critical race theory. Of course, you know, the schools were, uh, you know, not owning up to it. Right, denying so, it. So, you know, she actually, you know, filed a rec- public records request and was able to find a 571-page document about how the uh, school, schools in her area were implementing ethnic studies into her wow. uh, into their classes and that in this implementation document, the words, the phrase critical race theory was used 44 times. It wasn't used just once or twice. 44 times it was used in how to implement this ethnic studies requirement in their schools. And so therefore, you know, again, if you want that transparency, if you want to uh, ensure that uh, the, uh, the schools uh, own up to what they're actually teaching the kids, that is one thing that parents can uh, use. The Goldwater Institute, for example, in Arizona, has uh, you know uh, put out a very good document about how to use public records requests for uh, that parents can uh, use as a tool.
0: Great. Well, you know what else people can do? They can buy your book. That is called The Great Parent Revolt, How Parents and Gra- Grassroots Leaders Are Fighting Critical Race Theory. You are an absolute joy to talk. To about this, Doctor, um, I would love it if you would come back on. I feel like we have more to talk about, particularly some of these um, states' efforts to ban critical race theory. I'd love your thoughts on that. We'll have to wait till till the next time you come on, but I really hope you do come back on. This has been a fascinating conversation.
1: Well, thank you very much, Julie. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I mean, there is so much to talk about on this subject, you know. And I think you know we've really only scratched the surface, so I think that uh, you know your listeners would be really interested and. In, to hear about some of the other stories in the book, but also about some of those issues that you bring up. So I would be happy to come back on your show.
0: Well, and I will say, as we wrap up here, I will say I so appreciate people telling people's stories. I think as, as a mom who I have, you know, I have a podcast and I, 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 I host a radio show uh, three times a week and I'm obviously part of IWF um, and I can write these stories, but there's an awful lot of parents who don't necessarily feel like they have that megaphone. Um, so I'm grateful to to you and your team and your co-authors uh, for highlighting some really inspiring stories. Parents, it can be depressing, but it, um, stories like this inspire us. So thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you
1: very much, Julie. And, uh, you know, our, our motto is that... We're not ivory tower people. We're people people.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's great. Well, you're always welcome here. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. That was a great conversation. The Bespoke Parenting Podcast is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Hang in there, parents. I'll I'll see you next time on Bespoke.